Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, Ian here, hope you're well. Uh, Just to let you know, this is going to be the last podcast until after the book is published in October. My general feelings are I think I probably need to just wait and see how that goes, see how it lands and the feedback that it gets, and that will then kind of shape how I do things in future, if at all, I suppose. And I suppose if I want to be completely honest, I do feel a bit ground down by a lot of the negativity around policing at the moment. Uh, I think I've probably been immersing myself in that perhaps a bit too much, and uh, when you just kind of look at it and read it and think about it it can actually get quite depressing so um and then there was the dreadful revelation last week that this metropolitan police officer wayne cousins pleaded guilty to the uh abduction rape and murder of sarah everard and i think i can probably safely say that every decent police officer in the country past and present and that is the overwhelming majority uh, in my experience 99% of people were absolutely horrified by that genuinely horrified and I think it's led to an awful lot of soul searching to think how on earth did that ever happen I think there's a, a genuine sense of shame um and yeah not just the not just the acts themselves which were horrific and appalling but the fact that there appeared to have been a significant element of premeditation and preparation in in what he was doing before sarah was abducted seemingly you know it was like being hit by a bolt of lightning really coming across someone like wayne cousins um, so there was that element of premeditation and preparation which made the whole thing just just dreadful, really. And I know that lots of police officers, uh, I monitor you know, the stuff that's been said by serving officers on Twitter and places like that, and I think there's just a collective sense of disbelief. Um, and then when you overlay all of that with all of the hostile narrative that I've talked a lot about in these podcasts and in my book, 
it really becomes um, hard to deal with, I think. Um, so anyway, I'm going to take a break. And I'm going to enjoy the summer with the family, um, doing some nice bits and bobs, get away, and um, see what happens with the book. And, and then if I feel that there's a appetite for more of these based on the feedback from the book, then I'll probably do that. But if there isn't, I probably won't. Okay. So um, anyway, without further ado, um, I'll just uh, move to the interview with one of my old sex offender managers, Arthur McHugh, who, as I told you, uh, would be discussing uh, how we deal with sex offenders in the community. So um, I think if you listen to uh, the first one where I give you a bit of a 101 on child sex offenders, followed by the interview with Dave Flanagan talking about how things used to be done. And then you listen to this one, you'll have a really good understanding of how the police do it. OK, uh, in the meantime, I hope you have a nice summer and um, I hope you find these podcasts interesting and helpful in terms of explaining how the police works. But, uh, but yeah, OK, enjoy. Right. Um, uh, uh, this week, folks, I've got um, uh, Arthur McHugh, who I'm absolutely delighted to have on the podcast um, for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, because um, Arthur and I used to work together in the Westminster Police and the Public Protection Unit, and also because he's a thoroughly good guy. So, Arthur, do you want to just uh, briefly introduce yourself um, and explain what you did, how we kind of knew each other and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. Hi, Ian. Uh, nice to hear from you again. Um, my name's Arthur McHugh. I was in the West Midlands Police for um, just about 32 years. My career started uh, when I was uh, 16, 17. I, in, I applied to join the uh, West Midlands Police Cadets in 1978. So on leaving school, I um, joined the cadets and then went on to the regular police. I started at Sutton Coldfield and I spent several years there uh, walking the beat. Uh, in those days, there was uh, a bar and a snooker room and a canteen. Uh, the whole station was like a big family. Yeah. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed you know, being in the police. I did various different roles. Um, so you, um, so you, were, you were cadets. So we've had quite a few cadets on, actually. So um, we had Graham Wetton the other day. He was a cadet. Um, Clive Burgess, who you know very well, he was also a cadet. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, do, I definitely think losing the cadets was something of a loss. I know they've got sort of something similar to the cadets now, but it's not quite what it used to be, isn't it? It's not actually a, a way of joining the police it's more sort of a bit of a kind of voluntary kind of thing isn't it so in terms of in terms of what what we want to talk about is 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 how sex offenders are managed uh, in the community and uh, this follows on from sort of a couple of other podcasts one where i give a sort of introduction one-on-one to child sex offenders and then another one uh, dave flanagan's interview where he talks about how things used to be done so so whilst i appreciate that it's a little bit of time since you left the police um, I think it's probably fair to say that it's the way sex offenders ma are managed today or is broadly the same as it was whenever you left 
um, yeah. but I do stand to be kind of corrected on that. So when, um, at what point in your career did, did you first come into all of that side of things? Well, I came into the public protection unit in 2005 and right. spent my last five years there. And that's where I met you. You were yeah. the DI in that public protection unit. Yeah. So it's so the last five years of my career I spent managing sex offenders right. um, in the West Midlands. So so my uh, so my memories so that I've just walked down memory lane then. So my my memories of you uh, when we worked together, well, let, let's talk about the public protection unit generally. Um, so that team, as you know, was a multidisciplinary team. Uh, and within it, we had the child abuse investigators. We had the sex offender managers, which was you and Louis, wasn't it? Um, so there's two of you. Uh, this just sort of helps people understand how this all works. Um, we had the domestic abuse unit uh, who managed all of the uh, sort of investigations and support to domestic abuse victims uh, and we also had vulnerable adults uh, investigation um, which is into allegations of abuse of generally speaking the elderly and vulnerable wasn't it so so yes yeah, so what are your what are your what are your memories of of the the ppu being part of a ppu was it a very different type of policing to what you'd experienced before oh it was it was very different um I didn't really know much about the role before I started. Uh, and it was all paper files at that time, piles and piles of files on all these offenders that were now subject to the notification requirements. Right. Um, and the main, the main part of the job was to make sure that they complied with the notification requirements. That was the first thing. Right. So just talk, talk us through what that actually means. So to, so let's let's take a scenario where someone has been um, convicted of a relevant offence. So just describe how that all kind of works. So what type of offences are we talking about? Well, there's a whole list of offences um, um, under Sexual Offences Act 2003, a schedule of offences where... If convicted or cautioned, you must comply with uh, certain requirements uh, within three days of your conviction. Uh, they're mainly offences to protect children, but not exclusively. There are offences of rape, uh, indecent assault. Um, if the sentence is appropriate, um, depending on the sentence, you would be reliable to notify yourself to the police under these requirements. Uh, and those requirements would be for you to come into the police station and confirm your details and the address you're staying at. Um, and you yeah. have to provide your national insurance details. Other, other matters have been, have been added to that, like your passport details, your bank details. Yeah. You are required to come in and sign a, a document as to where you are living and, that you, and confirm your details. Yeah. So, um, so we, we sort of commonly re commonly refer to that as the sex offenders register, don't we? I suppose that's the sort we do, of, yeah. That's the sort of um, I suppose what's that's what the media would describe it as, isn't it? Being a, on the sex yeah. offenders register, but we we kind of call it we call them RSOs, don't we? Registered sex offenders. Yeah, we do. Um, and at the time I was doing it, I think it was about fifty thousand nationally. Um, now I think there's over sixty thousand 
It's an increasing number of people on that register. Um, I personally, when I started the job, I was doing it on my own, and I I was managing 160 uh, registered sex offenders. On your own? On my own to start with, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I felt pretty snowed under to start with. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Because uh, at the time, the government guidance was that there should be 50 to 80 per officer um, right. under management. And then, as you mentioned earlier, Louis, in, uh, Louis came on later and um, joined the team. Yeah. So, again, for, for people who don't understand all this stuff, uh, we're, and just a, a sort of a health warning, we're not going to be discussing uh, identifying individuals. Um, we're going to be talking around some of those cases, I suppose, give people an idea of the types of people that we deal with and sort of their mindset and, and how we how we manage them once they've been convicted, really. I think it's fair to say, and I said this in a previous podcast with Clive Burgess, didn't I, that Stetchford, where we were working in Birmingham East at the time, was an incredibly busy part of the country, wasn't it? It certainly was, yeah. And of course, Liza was just... Uh coming into being at that time, the actual computer system for um, registering these offenders and managing them uh, in conjunction with probation and prison services. That's right. So I remember, so I was there just during that period when Visor came in. Um, So it was the sort of moving over from a paper-based system to a a computer system. So Visor, I'm going to give give it a go if I remember, Violent and Sexual Offenders, what's the R stand for? Register. Register? Okay, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Uh, the stand to be corrected than that, but uh, Visor, Violent and Sexual Offenders Register. So, so basically it was a, it's a national system, isn't it? A national system yeah. which is used to track and monitor all individuals who are, have been convicted of sexual offences or violent offences that would sort of reach the threshold of of uh, of a mapper management would that be would that, that be about right? That's correct. Yeah, particularly violent or dangerous offenders are also on there where they need managing under mapper. Okay. The I don't know whether you've explained the mapper. Yeah. So um, so yeah, important to point out what mapper is all about. So um, mapper is a uh, national process for managing individuals who pose a significant threat to the community. Um, and that stands for, oh gosh, I'm really going to test myself here because it's been a while, the Multi-Agency Public Protection Arrangements. Is that right? That's correct. Hey, yes. look at that. There they are. So, <laughs> so MAPA, um, so in, in every police sort of geographical um, area of the country, there will be a um, MAPA panel, uh, which will be chaired typically by the local superintendent. Uh, I believe it has to be a uh, rank of at least superintendent. And they will sit on a, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it's a monthly basis. They will sit and discuss all of the those individuals who reach a particular threshold of risk, either for sexual reasons or for violence. So um, now this is where I'm, my memory is going to, there's going to be people out there who, who sit on the panels are going to be shouting at me now, aren't they? But um, the, the map, mapper will will only discuss certain individuals who who are who whose risk level is sits at a particular threshold, won't they? Um, That's right. I, yeah. I believe that is that level um, twos and threes. Oh gosh, this is all. That's right. Yes. 
So level level one, which would be your registered sex offenders, would be subject to your normal management. Right. And then you've got the different levels where there's multi-agency approaches required. You'd have your level two, and then where there's a high level of resources required, yeah. surveillance, that type of thing. That's right. Um, they would get to level three. So not many would be at level three, but okay. uh, would take a lot of resources to manage right. somebody at level we, three. We very rarely dealt with level threes, but when level threes came along, they, as you say, they had a full wraparound of, uh, so let's describe someone who is a, who might be a typical level three. So this is, this is someone who has either committed an extremely violent offences um, and will have received almost certainly a custodial sentence um, or a serious sexual offender who is just about to be released into the community from prison. Um, and there will be a risk assessment conducted uh, while they're still in custody involving uh, the probation or the uh, offender management, as their, name, their name changes, it seems like by the by the week at the moment, doesn't it? But uh, probation officers and the prison service and the police will conduct a risk assessment of that individual. So if you've got someone who's, for example, being um, convicted of serious violent or sexual offences, they have, their behaviour has continued to be um, concerning whilst they've been in prison, but their sentence effectively has reached its end and there is no way that the kind of criminal justice system can lawfully hold on to them for any longer and therefore they must be released into the community, then they um, have a whole package of measures wrapped around them, don't they? They do, yeah. So it's coming up, basically the agency's getting together and coming up with a plan to safely manage that person's return into the community and uh, doing everything possible to make sure that there's no reoffending. So, so the way we would manage it, again, just to help people understand this, is that an offender manager will be allocated to that individual, and that might be someone like you, and you would literally almost physically pick them up from prison, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, literally meet them at the gate of the prison uh, and take them to typically an approved premises, isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, one of the most important things when they are released is that they're going back to a suitable address. And... I mean, that is probably one of the most important things that is done by the agencies, that the uh, place where they're going to be living is suitable uh, yeah. for them. Yeah. So very often, um, you know, they can't go back to the location where they were committing offences because um, there'll, be, there'll be various licence conditions, their prison licence conditions to stop them from going to certain geographic locations where they're likely to have potential contact with previous victims um, or, um, you know, individuals, potential accomplices who, who may uh, draw them back into offending again. So very often these people go to approved premises, don't they? So just describe what an approved premises actually is, Arthur. Well, it's general. It's, it's um, a premises which the, they're run by the probation service and a probation officer allocated the offender would have to be sure that the premises that they're going back to is suitable for them to be supervised at. 
often, as you said, they've committed offences at their own home address. Yeah. So they need to go somewhere where they can have close supervision. Um, so a bail host, um, a hostel, um, supervised twenty four seven is the most um, appropriate in a lot of cases to start with. It's a, a gradual process of uh, seeing how they behave in those premises to eventually get them back into their own premises. Yeah, and very often today they'll be GPS tagged, won't they? They would, uh, in some cases, yeah. Right, so that's a, um, a tag that they'll wrist that they'll wear on their ankle or whatever, which monitors their location sort of 24 hours a day. And then any deviation from their location uh, would be immediately flagged to the offender management team who would take action, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, usually at the... Um, at the mapper stage, we would agree the license conditions for an offender coming out of prison. And it can be a whole list of uh, restrictions on them when they come out, uh, where they live, who they live with, um, what sort of employment they're going to do, um, whether they're allowed to use a vehicle, um, who they can have contact with. There can be a whole list of yeah. conditions on the license. Yeah. And of course, if they breach any of those conditions, as an offender manager, they can be arrested and um, returned to custody and to serve the rest of their sentence. So it's a, it is a really powerful tool. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they come out of prison. And there's a lot of stuff now around um, denying their use of technology now, isn't there? In terms of saying you're not allowed to go on the internet, you're not allowed to have a mobile phone, you're not allowed to have any sort of Wi-Fi enabled device, all of that kind of stuff, isn't there? Yeah, the, the license conditions can be drawn up by the police and the probation and the prison. Um, obviously, they've got to be proportionate and reasonable and related to the type of offending that they've committed. They'd have to be justifiable in a court. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's challenged. They would, they would, you can't just pick anything out of the sky. They've got to be reasonable and appropriate for that person's offending behaviour. Yeah. So just going back to then the MAPA process. So you've got someone that come out of prison, they've been picked up by their offender manager, someone like you, they've been taken, physically taken to the approved premises, they've got their GPS tag on, um, and, and then uh, the, the, those individuals who are at the highest level of risk would be then discussed on a regular basis. Yeah, um, I think we did them bi-monthly, but it's by the by, isn't it? Right, okay. But on a, on a regular basis, the MAPA panel will sit, so that'll be a combination of police, probation, it could be health, it could be alcohol and drug treatment services. It's anyone who has uh, is involved in that person's life or is able to bring information, useful information to the table to be able to allow the authorities to manage the risk posed by that person, isn't it? That's correct. And with each offender, we then come up with a plan um, with actions for each agency as to the best way of managing that person back into the community. Um, so if you've got yeah. someone, uh, so let's describe someone who's a level three, so the level three being the highest level of risk, uh, you might have that person, that person, we may, we know that that person has been actively discussing, um, you know, fantasizing, for example, is actually, you know, a lot of them will tell their, will tell their um, psychiatrists, won't they, that, um, you know, when I get released, I'm going to um, find a child, a three-year-old child, ideally, and I'm going to abduct them and rape them, you know, um, and um, that's, they will disclose that in the clinical setting, and, you know, the risk around that person will be deemed to be so high 
um, that they'll probably have a range of covert tactics wrapped around them as soon as they, I'm not going to discuss what those are because, um, you know, I don't think this is necessary, but there will be a whole range of ways of monitoring that person, won't there? Um, and the object of the exercise really will be to identify any behaviour that is concerning, um, which indicates that they're planning to commit further offences with a view to getting that person back into prison as quickly as possible, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 about the agencies um, communicating with each other and waving the red flag if there's any signs whatsoever of a change in behaviour, which is indicating a possibility of reoffending. Yeah, and I think if any yeah. of that. Sorry, go on, go on. No, I was just going to say if any of those red flags are raised, yeah. you know, we've got to be straight on it and taking action, yeah. and if necessary revoking the license and returning them to custody yeah as you as you say there's a, a range of measures covert and otherwise yeah that, that we can catch them out it's about catching out catching them out uh, if yeah. they don't comply with the conditions yeah yeah and um yeah and, and the stuff that we're describing here isn't isn't unique to to birmingham where where we both work this is a national process so if you walked into i hope any sex offender management uh, unit or offender management unit anywhere in the UK, this is how it would happen, isn't it? Yes, they're all on visor and they're all managed using the uh, the mapper system. And the uh, there are you know offender managers throughout the police forces in the country, so they should all be doing the same same job. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we have the most thorough process for managing sex offenders anywhere in the world i think the uk is certainly leading the world in terms of the way that we um, monitor and supervise sex offenders in the community would you agree with yeah. that um, well i think the mapper system when it was brought in has vastly improved the the management of offenders um, i mean the agencies working together has got to be a good thing hasn't it yes definitely and uh, certainly the relationships in my in my experience that the relationships between the police, probation, health, the prison service, social services, all of those different agencies was extremely good. And, you know, we were talking, uh, you know, typically for me as the DI in the unit, I'd be talking to my counterparts in those, ag those other agencies um, on a different Yeah, the sharing of information. The sharing of information is uh, critical yeah. to um, preventing reoffending. Yeah. And that's where I think I think we're very good actually um, in terms of information sharing. I think we're I think we're we're not we're not good at a at a sort of a so in, in my current role as a technology advisor, one of the big headaches I think for the public sector is sharing large volumes of data between different public sector organisations such as health or education or policing or prisons. But I think where we're very very good is is uh, on a case-by-case -case level to, to manage risk uh, relating to individuals. I think we're extremely good at, at that, in my experience. Yeah, anyway. I, I would agree, yeah. Uh, I mean, as I said, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, having those um, good working relationships with probation and prison um, and the health services, et cetera, is absolutely crucial to yeah, yeah. the aim of the job. So, um, so let's talk about your job as managing 
so we've talked about sort of the big picture, I suppose, in terms of the processes around how that how that happens at a sort of an organisational level, sort of cross multi multi agency level. Let's talk about your actual experiences of doing that job as a sex offender manager. How did how did you find the job itself? Um, well, I found it quite a challenge, but I quite like a challenge. It's um, it, it requires all sorts of skills because um, you're dealing with all sorts of <laughs> characters, some very strange characters. And, you know, if possible, we want to stop these people from re-offending. I mean, that is the name of the game. Yeah. Uh, the priority is to stop them re-offending. And in terms of, in terms of the, so let's say, um, you know, initially you had that completely unrealistic volume of, of people to supervise, 150-odd. Um, and then, then Louis came along, didn't he? And uh, yeah. sort of were able to sort of share the burden. Typically speaking, what percentage of people that you were supervising uh, were convicted of child sex offences versus adult sex offences? I would probably say it's probably about eighty percent child sex offences. Right. Okay. And the adult sex offences, what were the precursor offences typically in for the adult offenders, for the adult on adult offenders? Well, they'd have to be any of the offences on the schedule, um, but offences like uh, rape, indecent assault, it would, it, it's determined, those offences are determined by the pr- prison sentences that they get. Um, the, the, it's on the schedule what, what the 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 sentences that they get determine whether they go on the reg- sex offenders register and how long they're on for okay. um but i mean there was serial serial rapists um i mean there was there was a whole range from people that had exposed themselves what we, what yeah. we used to call flashers yeah uh, internet offenders to as i said yeah. serial rapists there was a whole range um of adult offenders yeah. adult on adult and would it be, is it possible to draw any generalised observations about the difference between adult on adult sex offenders and, and child sex offenders? What were your sort of experiences? Did you find the adult on adult offenders did, was managing them? Did that feel different to you? No, not, not, not particularly because, you know, a serial rapist of adults is as dangerous as somebody who's offending against a child. In terms of their temperament, was there was there any kind of obvious differences there, or or and did you were they all sort of unique, individually unique? I mean, I'm just trying to. Yeah, I, I would say they were. They're all individuals, like people everywhere. There, you know, there's a whole range of um, different types of people. I don't think you can. Cate- I think if you start categorising people, hmm. um, you make assumptions that can be incorrect. Yeah. No, that's um, that's a good point. No, I'm, I'm not saying there should be any differences. I'm just curious from your whether yeah. you, in your sort of quiet moments, did you ever sort of think, oh gosh, there are distinct differences? But but it seems it seems from what you've said that there, that there yeah. probably aren't. Yeah, I, I just try to keep a completely open mind about people uh, and yeah. their behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I think there, there is a whole range. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in terms of your typical kind of day to day working life, um, yeah, how many individual sex offenders typically would you go and see? Because you have to visit, you have to physically visit them, don't you? Um, yeah, and talk to them. How many typically would you do on a on average day? 
Well, on an average day, you'd probably have, you might have two or three, four come into the police station because they've been convicted or they're due for an annual because there's an annual registration. Because after their initial registration, they had to come in every every year to re-register to right. confirm their identity and their address. So we'd all we'd always have it, have them popping into the station every yeah. day on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. And then, as well as that, we would go out and visit yeah. um, some of the offenders in the community. Yeah. Um, I mean, a visit can be ten minutes, or it can be two hours. It depends on the level of the person you're dealing with. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and what proportion so, can you, from your memory, uh, what proportion would you say were level ones? That's sort of the lower level of risk versus the level twos. Um, well, most of them were at level one. Right. Um, I mean, I can't think, think exactly, but probably three quarters of them were at level one. Right. And then there were some at level two, and very few at level three. But the, the one, yeah. the high, the, the high, the highest risk people, you could you could spend all day on one. Offender at uh, yeah, yeah. the highest risk level. You could yeah. spend all day investigating what they're up to and yeah. who they're contacting and yeah, yeah. where they've been travelling to, yeah, yeah. etc. Um, yeah. And I certainly, I certainly re- remember those conversations that we would have on a regular basis. Of, uh, and, and it was a, it, it felt like a. I'm a great believer in the 80-20 principle in life. You know that you spend 80% of your time dealing with 20% of the issues and um whether that's staff or whether that's kind of whatever it is um it in in your world it seemed to me that the conversations that you and i would be having on a day-to-day week-to-week basis 80 percent of them would be around a very small handful of individuals weren't they who were yeah who were who were really problematic weren't they yeah it's just a very small number that consume a massive amount of time yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you've got a child sex offender who you suspect is going to commit an offence, yeah, um, and all the indications are there, but you haven't yeah. quite got the evidence to bring them back in, yeah. you've got to spend a lot of time, yeah, um, gathering intelligence, gathering intelligence on them, um, liaising with all the different agencies and trying to find out, yeah, what they're up to. Yeah. And it was an interesting, I find that role, my my own role in that side of things very interesting because I would sort of see the entire life cycle of, of um, an investigation from start to end, whereas you would tend to pick things up once they've been convicted and then yeah. you would, it was your job to manage them, whereas, whereas I would be involved in the initial sort of sort of typical just to explain for to people how this all works so i would be uh involved in the initial the initial disclosure from a child so let's talk about something which was uh fairly typical it'd be a disclosure made by a child maybe to a teacher or to a nurse at school or there would be some concerning behavior which would uh, cause mum or uh, whatever, someone, grandma, to, to be concerned. Uh, and then there would be uh, a disclosure to probably to children's social services, which would then be then flagged to us as the police to say, we've had this disclosure about this child who said that uh, the man three doors away put his finger in her vagina, you know, when he was playing, in, when she was playing in the garden or something. And then that would then trigger a um, investigation 
a police investigation which would be led by by me I suppose as the DI uh, and the team uh, and we would go out we would um, you know with social services we would do a video interview with the child um, to see if the child was in a, you know old enough to, to make a disclosure of an evidential disclosure which would then trigger a full investigation we would then you know if there was sufficient evidence we'd go out and arrest um, the suspect you know search uh, seize electronic devices and all that kind of stuff and, and out of that would come a whole generally speaking in my experience a whole massive deluge of evidence generally speaking once once you've actually sort of got hold of someone and then you start digging and digging and digging and you find out that they've been doing this for a very long time and and they've they've probably been filming it and got all sorts of stuff on uh, in you know devices and, and what have you uh, they then get charged, go to court, go to prison, and then you guys would get involved once they get released from prison, don't you? So yeah, we would we would pick them up uh, as, as soon as they're released from prison. Um, and the most most serious cases would be somebody we had, we had one uh, man who had spent about twenty years in prison, having indecently assaulted young boys. Mm. Um, over a long period of time. So he's, so he's done 20 years in prison. Um, so pretty serious offending, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Um, now, this man, initially, when he came out, he didn't commit any further offences that were discovered during his licence period, so his licence had run out. So once that licence license runs out, mm. you can't recall them to prison mm-hmm. for breaching those conditions. But this man was clearly trying to entice children again. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether you remember this, but we had, he was he was one of these people that was befriending oh, was this uh, the, single women. Was this the cat flap job or the weird cat flap yeah. thing? Yeah. yeah. So he, one of the things he did was he, as I said, he was befriending single women. And there was a single woman living next door to him with a young child, a toddler. I think the toddler was about three. And he created a, a gate or cat flap between his garden and the garden next door, mm, yeah, allowing yeah. the child to come through the cat flap or gate to get his ball back. Because yeah. he, he didn't want to keep throwing the ball over, so he created this gate to allow the child to come through to get the ball Mm. And one day when the child came through to get the ball, he took the child into the kitchen mm. uh, and stripped the child off. Yeah, yeah. And he was just about to commit an offence, I believe, against yeah. that child yeah, yeah, yeah. when the mother came across them. Yeah. Because she, she'd been wondering where her child had gone and came. she went round and found him in the kitchen with her child undressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I've no doubt that he was about to commit a further offence yeah, um, and certainly, certainly that individual and other, and there's there's plenty more like him out there who were um, actively uh, and they play as and I talked about this in my previous podcast and they play the long game, don't they? They're very happy to play the long game, so they will work. They will they will identify the particular child that they're interested in, and they will ingratiate themselves to, you know, groom the people around that child and uh, ingratiate themselves, don't they? Yeah. In order to. But to obtain evidence from that child was now impossible because the child was only about three. That's right, yeah. 
And unfortunately, the mother didn't want to pursue it for her own reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think they, um, that, that made things very difficult. However, he was somebody that we spent an awful lot of time and effort on because we, we did feel it was very likely he would re-offend, and he has actually since re-offended. Yeah, yeah. Um, his, his, he spent a lot of his time befriending single women. I think you mentioned that in uh, uh, in your previous chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that individual, I can remember, I mean, the thing is, as you know, Arthur, um, whilst it's an incredibly serious job and we take it unbelievably seriously, there are some moments of real humour as well, aren't there? Um, there are. And, and I remember uh, on one occasion, so in certain circumstances, when someone is a registered sex offender uh, and they're subject to uh, license conditions or we've got some sort of hold over them, we can, yeah. we can disclose to other parties uh, their relevant offences. If we believe that they're in a position where they can harm children, um, we, can, we can actively disclose to employers or people like that, can't we? We encourage them to do it themselves to start with, if that's possible. So we request that they do it if possible. But if they don't, yes, there are other means that disclosures yeah. can be made. So, um, so on, on one occasion, remember, um, I won't describe, describe the, the person, or you know, but it's just an amusing um, memory that I still makes me smile when I think about it now. Is um, he, this particular individual was refusing to disclose to his employer? Uh, that he had many, 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 many convictions against children. And the nature of the employment was such that there was a strong likelihood that he would be uh, coming into contact with children. Yeah, and the, employer had a, the employer had a son. That's right. And, and we, the son was of the age of these previous victims. That's right, yeah. So we, we said to him, right, you need to disclose your convictions to your employer. Um, and if you don't, we, we will do it, whether you like it or not, because that's, we're allowed to do that. He, he refused, didn't he? So, so we had a meeting with his employer, Yumi, and uh, his, him and his employer. We explained, sat down in this interview room at the police station and explained you know, why we were there and what, what the nature of the meeting was uh, about. And of course, the offender himself was sitting there looking very awkward. I think that's probably fair to say. He was unhappy, very, very unhappy that we were having this meeting with his boss, yeah, his, new, sure. his, his new boss. And uh, so so you went through the list of convictions, didn't you, from yeah. the, the police national computer to say, you know, um, and you were sort of encouraging him to, to give that information himself, but that he was just yeah. sitting, sitting there in silence, wasn't he? Yeah. And uh, and then on one, eventually you got to one of the offences at such and such a date, you committed um, buggery against a four-year-old male child, and this um, <laughs> and this uh, this guy, the, the the employer, sort of shot up out of his chair and said, "Burglary? Are you saying that my employee is a burglar?" And <laughs> which, that's which right. Point, at which point we we kind of like tried not to fall about laughing was like no 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 um let's let's sort of explain what buggery was to him and i think at that point i think he realized his uh his employment uh was had, had ceased from that moment on didn't it 
That's right. Yeah, we had to explain the difference between burglary and buggery after yeah, yeah. the meeting to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, I think he was yeah. he was quite shocked when he found out what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially but, as as he had a son of the uh, of the age group of his previous victims. So, in terms of your your day sort of day to day job managing these offenders, what was that actually? What was that actually like dealing with? And so you talked about eighty percent child sex offenders, didn't you? What was that actually like when you would go into someone's home? And have to sit down and engage with them. I mean, did you find that were you able to sort of hide your feelings of personal distaste as to what they had actually done when you were dealing with them? Oh, I mean, I think it's essential that you do that. Uh, I, I felt that you, you, one has to build a relationship with these people, uh, almost befriending them in a professional way to find out all the information that we we would wish to know about what they're up to, who they're associating with, where they're working, um, and any other contacts that they have so that we can assess their risk. I mean, you meet some pretty vile people, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, who have committed horrendous offences against yeah. children. Yeah. Um, I had one guy that had uh, taken his own uh, stepdaughter to work and raped her in the office at work. Oh, nice. Uh, what a charmer. But but th- through visiting them and investigating them locally, I, I found out this guy had managed to get himself on the chair of local community meetings. Right. Um, having slightly changed his surname, the spelling of his surname. Right. So that when, when any checks were done, mm-hmm. he thought he would escape then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Yeah. Um, Child sex offenders, generally speaking, are extremely good at covering their tracks, aren't they? Or will try very, very hard to distance themselves from their offending, both not just physically distance themselves, but psychologically and emotionally distance themselves, don't they? Absolutely. And very, very uh, devious and manipulative people, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um they manipulate anybody around them that they can get away with. And did you find that because you, because this was your job, uh, they will have known that you are, you were incredibly good at understanding the mindset of a sex offender. Did you find that they were trying to manipulate you as well frequently? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. They would, um, you know, make complaints about the way you spoke to them or dealt with them and say that, you know, they wouldn't they didn't want to be dealt with by you, they'd want to be dealt with by another officer. And, you know, they've got contacts in the police and could make life difficult for you. This type of behaviour yeah, was yeah, quite yeah. common off some of the most, yeah. you know, dangerous people that I met. So when you're going into someone's house, you obviously had to have a mindset of, of it. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because on one hand, you have to be building this rapport. You've got to be sort of, befriending them in a professional way but also going in there with your eyes wide open and looking for anything um, that is going to cause you some concern so when you went into a sex offender's house to do their sort of regular visits what sort of things would you be looking for well strangely often it it would be um, things that they haven't told you about like they've started a new relationship Obviously, if they have uh, and they haven't told you about this, 
you'd want to know a lot more about a new relationship and whether there are any contacts with under-18s as a result of that relationship. Um, but you'd be, you'd be looking for any signs of a change in their behaviour or living conditions. Fr- from you build, you build this up over time so you get to know the person, you know what their home's normally like and what they're doing. And then... Yeah. It's being able to identify any changes within that home setting. Yeah. So, do you did you turn up just out of the blue? So, or did they know you were coming? Well, as much as possible, we, we did random visits um, with, without their knowledge. I mean, if they knew you were coming, it would be a bit of a waste yeah. of time in most cases. Yeah. So it was random uh, visiting. Yeah. I mean, there was one guy I dealt with. Uh, when I was in CID, actually I was a DS in CID. The reason I did the reason I did the introduction to child sex offenders podcast earlier on was because I think it's really really important that people understand the mindset of of people who've got sexual interest in children because because that because they take advantage of people's naivety and trust, don't they? They uh, they see that as a as a weakness to be exploited, and uh, certainly one of the sex offenders I dealt with. Um, it was many years ago in Coventry, but but he had the reputation locally as being like the nicest guy in the world. He was so popular uh, with all of the people in the street. He was involved in all sorts of sort of charitable stuff. He uh, had basically an open door policy for most of the young people in the area who would come around and hang out at his house, play video games. He'd be plying them with sweets and treats and all sorts of things and and everybody thought he was like the greatest bloke in the world uh, and when we eventually you know executed a warrant and and had a look at what he'd been doing um you know he'd been he'd been having sex with children from that local area for years and um and it'd been record videoing at all there was there was more child abuse um imagery and videos that you could shake a stick at it was just he was absolutely prolific and so the question that you sort of ask yourself is how on earth was that going on in that local area for as long as it was without him being identified? But of course, you know, and I know is that people are gullible, aren't they? And there's also, there's also something there about a really, a lack of uh, very poor parenting, isn't there? That a lot of people just don't care where their kids are what they're doing, who they're hanging out with. As long as they're not in the house getting onto their feet, that's all they care about, isn't it? That's true, yeah. Um, and I think uh, particularly when people are looking for a new relationship, mm. they can be blind to who they're meeting. And um, it's, it's like um, people think everybody at church is nice, don't they? Yeah, that's people really think cool. anybody at a church group. You think, oh, that's a you know, that's a nice person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because good people go to church, mm-hmm. but, but but sex offenders all go, also go to church and they befriend people in church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they target single women. Yeah, uh, and they join the group that the single woman is in, uh, and then they wheedle their way into their house with the intention of abusing their children. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we saw that an awful lot, didn't we? I saw we? that on numerous occasions, and I worked closely with uh, some of the church leaders in Birmingham um, and had really good working relationships and drew up um, 
conditions for people to attend church without having any access to children. And if they didn't follow them, then we would take further action and um, uh, apply for orders from the courts to prevent them having any contact with children. It could be uh, it could be incredibly frustrating though as well, couldn't it? So there was a there was a there was sort of like a blind a blind trust that was was also evident from a lot of churches, and you know that I you know as a I'm a Christian with a small C, I suppose, in the sense that I don't bang on about it, but um, and I don't go to church as much as I should do, I suppose. But um, it used to really frustrate me that there was this sort of um, blind trust put in people so even when you went to some church leaders and said to them this person's just been released from prison um he's got history of uh, abusing um you know ingratiating himself with single women and abusing their kids um and he's now coming to your church and you need yeah. to put, put some control measures around him um by all means you know if you want to have him in your church that's your your, your decision but we need to make sure that he's not offending and sometimes they would be no, no, no. He's changed. They would say no, no, no. He's changed. He's changed, and and God understands that, and we need to offer him God's, you know, love and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, whoa, stop, stop. You're not listening to what I'm saying here. This is a prolific predatory paedophile we're talking about, and he will not change, and he will continue to offend. And if you adopt this kind of blind mindset, then you're putting children at risk, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I personally found, uh, I know exactly what you're saying, I personally found that the churches um, had improved their safeguarding uh, policies and procedures massively over uh, recent years, mm. um, whereas I found that the mosques were behind in time with all this. They still hadn't caught up right. with uh, the safeguarding and they would... In my experience, they would um, they weren't on board with the safeguarding policies yeah. and would sort sort things out themselves. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to know, you know, to what extent of at all that has changed. Um, it'd be interesting to speak to someone or get some information from someone who is working in that in that area today to see, you know, whether that has changed. But yeah, I do I do remember that frustration from when we were working in Birmingham East, but. Um, so um, in terms of uh, the, some, of, some of the other people that you dealt with who we would describe as people in positions of trust, what other sort of professions did you find attracted, attracted child sex offenders who were presumably using that as a gateway to children? Well, in, in my experience, I think I've seen it across the board in... Uh, all professions, right? Or um, teaching, the police, um, the church—it's mm. it, across the board. Um, yeah. People abusing their positions of trust. Yeah. And, um, and to, to what extent? And this is—I don't know if you can even answer this question because I don't suppose there is a—I don't suppose there is an absolute answer. But um, to what extent do you think someone who has got sexual interest in children? will choose that profession based on the likelihood of accessing children well i think that is um i think that is a, a known fact now that uh some people choose a profession with the sole intention of uh, hmm. 
abusing children at some stage. Well, the motivation, uh, and, the motivation is that strong, isn't it? It is, and it's um, they know that from when they start that career. Mm. It's frightening. It's frightening to think that, but it is. It is true. Yeah, and one of the points. Uh, one of the points I made in in the previous podcast was that the the process for um, checking people before they go into certain roles, whether that's uh, helping out with your local cub scout group or, or or helping out at the local swimming club or whatever, you know, there's a process where you have to undergo the disclosure and barring service, the DBS checks, yeah. which used to be called CRB checks, didn't they? Um, but but to my mind, I don't know what you think, but to my mind, those checks are of very, very limited usefulness because the only way you're going to get pinged on them is, is if you've uh, committed an offence. Yes, if you've previously come to the notice of the police, uh, and many, many haven't. Mm. Um, yeah, often it's the first time they're caught. There's multiple offences in the past. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I have also come across uh, people who've tried to avoid the DBS by changing the um, spelling of their name. Right. So it sounds the same, but the spelling is slightly different. Yeah, as yeah, a way yeah. of a way of getting around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so just a just a slight change of tack. Then, um, did did you? How did you find this? From a, if you don't mind me asking, you don't have to answer this question. Then, but you know, from a psychological point of view, um, did you find it sort of troubled you doing this job for five years, day in and day out? Um, well, I think the only time it really troubled me was when, on the odd occasion, when somebody reoffended. Right. Uh, that's quite something to deal with that you're you're managing somebody and trying to prevent them, mm. uh, and then you find out they've reoffended. That's quite mm. uh, something to that disturbs you. Yeah. Uh, In terms of but, the list, the sort of stuff that you would have to listen to, um, you know, because obviously some of them, some of some of them, in my experience, get off on almost trying to freak out the police officers particularly female police officers sometimes by going into really quite graphic detail about what about what they like to do and it's almost trying to deliberately disgust you did you ever find that because i find that with a few people i don't yeah i think that would probably more come out when you were interviewing them you know on on their initial arrest Mm. and interview it's not something i came across Hmm. With with my with the offenders. I mean, I, I did the job for five years, and I think that's probably enough for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think I said to you, I <laughs> until you contacted me, I I thought I'd deleted it, deleted it all from my memory banks. <laughs> sorry, sorry, um, sorry. Um, it's a bit like the mobile phone where you delete the message, but it's still there. Um, <laughs> I thought they'd all got. I thought my memories had all gone of sex offenders, but you've brought them all back again. So thank <laughs> you for that. <laughs> sorry. Oh mate, well treat it as treat it as kind of tough love, Arthur. Because um, okay, I mean my uh, my memories of working with you, I really enjoyed working with you. Um, it was really you were really great fun to work with, and um, you were so unflappable. It was like if I could use one word to describe you, it would be unflappable. I mean, unflappable. unflappable. I mean, you just <laughs> there was nothing there was nothing that you dealt with that ever phased you. You know, there was nothing that you could hear that 
freaked you out. It was like it's like you had ice water running through your veins. Whereas <laughs> other other people would be other people hearing the same stuff would be would be running out of the room screaming, wouldn't they? You know. Uh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe I just became hardened to it. All. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Um, you know, it was a real privilege. It was a real privilege working, you know, with you and and uh, the team, and it's some of my happiest memories of policing, really. Um, and certainly, you know, I was very fortunate um, after I left the PPU and I went back to counterterrorism. Um, after three or four years of doing that, I then went back to I was the national project manager for the Child Sexual Exploitation Action Plan. So that was a real privilege, you know, to to drive, hopefully, drive improvements across the whole of the UK around the way that. Um, the police dealt with um, children uh, who are potentially at risk of being sexually exploited. So, so yeah, clearly the time that I spent working with you guys um, was time well spent. And you know, I think we yeah. can all feel we can all feel pretty good about what we all did. But, but that's not to be complacent because this is still a massive, massive problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we had we had a great team, a very hardworking team, and. Critically, we had great um, working relationships with the other organisations. Yeah, yeah. The, the probation and the prisons and the social services. Yeah, and I think in, if, in if, the main, if there's one thing that if people listen to this podcast who who, who don't really understand much about policing, um, if they can just go away and sort of think and re- have a, a, a much better realization for. The stuff that police get involved in because it's it's a very very it's an area of policing that even police even people who've been in the police for a very long time don't really understand very well do they no no it's one of those areas that unless you work in it you don't really know what yeah. they're doing yeah and there's a lot of police and and, and i would i think it should be it's one of those areas i think that everyone in the police from the, the the youngest and uh, least experienced probationer all the way through to the people at the very top of the organization everyone needs to understand this stuff don't they because that's everyone the needs to understand it and everybody can provide something um in the form of intelligence yeah yeah yeah, yeah. which will assist managing these people yeah yeah listen my friend um it's been a real pleasure. It's been lovely catching up with you again. And, uh, you know, you haven't aged a day, not a day. Oh, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for bringing back all those uh, memories. I've got a very good friend. I've got a friend who can provide very good um, counselling and she'll give you 20% off. Um, I'm going <laughs> to. Oh, that's very kind of you. I'll be. Um... I'll be going oh, yeah. to delete delete those memories again now. Just just before just before we finish, mate, just on that one. Um, what was your thoughts on the uh, clinical supervision that we we got from the psychiatric nurses? Because I thought it was a complete waste of time. Did you? Oh, uh, the uh, I'd forgotten all about that actually. Yeah, we had to <laughs> we had to pop to headquarters to see uh, the super uh, clinical supervision. I can't remember how regular it was. It shrink. But, it was about once yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To make sure we were all okay. Yeah, I, I thought it was a complete waste of time as well. <laughs> yeah, well, she used to come out. She used to come out to Stetsford and um, interview the team, and and used to then tell us, "Oh, Ian, your teams are—they're all cracking up," and uh, and uh, and I'd, I'd and say, "And you're showing real signs of stress as well." And I was like saying, "Well, no shit, Sherlock. Of course they are. They're all cracking up because all, <laughs> sh- 
all this shit they got to deal with all day, <laughs> all, day, all day long. What do you expect? <laughs> so the question is, what are you going to do about it? Oh, yeah, let me, let me sure. guess. Let me guess. Fuck all. That's what you're going to do about it. See you again in six months' time. <laughs> but there you go. That's the cross we all bear, isn't it? Listen, my friend, it's been a pleasure. And, okay. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you and going for a beer and talking. Yeah, that would be lovely. Lovely talking, to speak to you. Talking nonsense. All right, mate. See you again soon. All right. Bye Thanks there. very much. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> We had a policeman, he was often in our street We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat But now we never see him, it really makes us frown No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town oh. <laughs>